Welcome to Two Harmless Randos with your hosts, Christine and Mary. So I listened to a couple of minutes of that webinar on finding your purpose that I told you about. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a reason it was free. It was really lame. So, but it got me thinking about this idea of purpose. So, um, yeah, that's, that's why it's been on my mind. I thought it would be a great topic for this episode. I hadn't done any pre-reading for this conversation today. And I remember, and then remember to actually grab it this morning that before I moved to DC and just after I finished all my coaching training, I wrote, self-published this little book, um, but I, I taught an eight-week workshop around this on finding your purpose. I really should have gone back and reread this. That's really cool. Yeah, I, I had forgotten how much fun it was to be a coach around here and how open people were to change and um, new ideas. And yeah, it, I just seemed to draw a lot of cool clients back then. <laughs> so um, what's it called? It's your time now. What will you do with it? Oh, okay. Yeah. Were clients coming to you with the expressed purpose of looking for a purpose, or did that come up through conversation? Uh, No, I think most of them were looking for their purpose. Like they either were in jobs that didn't make them happy, or they um, had been out of the workforce because they were moms. Like this was designed for women who had been out of the workforce or are kind of under underemployed, but um, and that's a lot of who my clients were. But there were also just people who like were on one track, but knew that it wasn't right for them and that they were unhappy, but they couldn't figure out what to do differently. So, yeah, like I remember this one woman; she was like an investment banker or something, making a lot of money, but she was really unhappy and as we talked over a few weeks, you know, she, I guess she figured out fairly early was that um, like her parents, she really had wanted to be a ballet dancer and was very good at it, but her parents were like, oh, you can't make money that way. And she had actually tucked that idea away. Like she'd actually forgotten it. Um, She was probably around 40 when I met her late thirties, early forties. So it was kind of a revelation for her, like, oh, yeah, there was this thing that I loved so much. And, you know, I believed my parents when they said that I couldn't make a living at it. And I said, well, is that true? You know, is it true that people can't make money? Um, And as she thought about it, and I started to name different ways, too, that you can make money, even if you're not actually dancing as a ballet dancer. So we did things like that. So I probably a lot of the stuff that you have learned about finding your core values first, like just really examining what's important to you. And uh, when you said she was, uh, had carried something with her, I thought you were going to say that she carried, you were saying she carried with her that love of her, her passion, but I thought you were going to say what she carried with her was the belief from her parents. And I guess she carried both. Yeah, she carried both. Yeah. But the one, the, the, her parents' words were louder <laughs> and yeah. kind of buried that, that knowing, that deep knowing that she had. In the work that I've done with coaching and in my coach training, we do talk about that a lot. We ask that question, is this true? You know, mm-hmm. and 
also the idea that these cultural and social influences do start to cover up what's burning inside of you. Yeah. And it, it's hard to, it's hard to see the difference. It's hard to even remember it. And sometimes when you reflect back to someone, this is the belief that you're carrying around. It is a light bulb moment. It seems so obvious when someone points it out to you. Right. <laughs> or just hearing what I heard there was the idea that someone else just looked at her and said, well, that's not my belief. Like, what if you could make money doing that? Our yeah. our family of origin, you're right, it overrides other data coming in. Yeah, it can for sure. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess. And some families are just so strong in their beliefs and so punitive. And I think even the society where you live, and we talked about this with friendships and the types of friendships you make, but the cultural area where you belong, mm-hmm. um, it can be ingrained and entrenched with all the people that you're around, the school that you went to growing up. You know, what do people typically do as careers? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. That that was why I chose to move to Weston when my girls were in high school, because I knew that the culture of the community was that creativity was valued. And both of my girls are very creative. And it didn't mean that they would go into the arts, but that it wouldn't be considered by their peers or the peers' parents to be something frivolous. <laughs> um, you know, there were a lot of parents who were artists themselves, like of all kinds. And it's just really fun to see the variety of creative, um, creative careers that the kids have gone into or even created for themselves. Um, whereas I, another town, the next town over, which is where the guy who wrote the Stepford Wives lived, <laughs> it was <laughs> all, you know, about getting into the Ivy Leagues and, you know, doing sports, getting into the Ivy Leagues, getting onto Wall Street. And that was like the main thing. And I was like, no way am I sending my kids to that town. It makes me think of some of something I learned in coach training about the work with Byron Katie. She also asked that question, is this true? But that whole process is about challenging a belief that you have and asking yourself, how would you act and feel if you didn't have that belief? If someone could go into your brain and just pull it out. And by putting your girls in a place where that belief doesn't exist, it's it's it's, it's making that happen almost before the fact that it just it's never even there to begin with to limit them. Right. What a gift. And they certainly didn't get that at home. So um, yeah, so that was very intentional on my part to make sure that their environment <laughs> was supportive of whoever they wanted to be. It wouldn't even occur to them, like, I couldn't do this. Yeah. 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 I, I really love Elizabeth Gilbert. And she has this, this little talk she does about the difference between a hobby, a job, a career, and a vocation. Have you heard that one? No. It's really interesting. Um, I think we have this mess. There's this message in our culture, especially uh, people of our generation, you know, do what you love, follow your passions, the money will follow. And I remember being in my twenties, like, was that uh, your parachute book? And what color is your parachute? your parachute? And I kept thinking like, oh, what is wrong with me? Like, how come everyone else I know has like this passion? They know what their thing is. And she She talks about the difference between hobbies, jobs, careers, and vocations, that a hobby is something that is just brings you pure joy and it's really low risk. You know, you're not waiting for a paycheck. You may not even tell people about it. You're just dabbling. 
and that a job is something that most people on this earth have to do. It's not really a choice. And it could be something you like. It doesn't have to be something you like, but you got to do it to pay the bills and to make sure that you can do what you want in this world. A career is a job that you love and you're thinking bigger picture. You're, you're making sacrifices. You believe in the mission. It, it's important to you. You, you, would, you would do things to move it forward. And a vocation, you're getting into more of that idea of, of a sacred calling. You know, the, she calls it the voice of the universe, like speaking through you. You're using your talents and gifts. And what's, what struck me about that is the part about the hobbies being low risk. I think a lot of people do better when they're in a situation where there's not a lot of risk of outcome. You're more free to be creative. And the idea of a vocation being something that no one can take away from you. Mm -hmm. Someone can take away your job. They can take away your career. But your vocation is something, she says, that you're willing to do this for the rest of your life if you want to, regardless of what the world thinks or anyone else thinks or how successful it is, or how much money it makes you. Right, right. And it, it made me think a lot of bit about burnout and careers. When you're in a career that really probably should be a job instead, but you're putting so much into it like you would a career, I think that's when burnout can happen. Mm-hmm. Yes, Interesting. Um, when you were talking about that, it made me think of Parker Palmer's book, um, Let Your Life Speak, mm. listening, listening for the voice of vocation. He mm. wrote it back in 99. Um, he was the director for a long time of Pendle Hill, that Quaker study center that we've talked about and think in other episodes. And we're, um, yeah, one of the big things that Quakers talk about is your leadings or the things that that still small voice inside you that that like inner wisdom that we all have knows um so he talks about techniques for getting at that uh, in his book i can't believe i missed that book when i was reading all those yep. other books <laughs> i know definitely recommend parker palmer is a beautiful writer and a, a wonderful human being he also has a great newsletter <laughs> mm. Yeah, and this idea of um, to that that often that vocation that thing that we're really led to do. Uh, last week we we ended our podcast with the idea that each of us has a little piece of the puzzle to bring to this greater, greater whole that makes the world a better place. And I think he and others talk about the idea that we all have something inside us that's completely unique. And when we can bring that out through our through our work, our vocation, you know, that helps to elevate all of us. Yeah, I'm also I'm listening to a book right now called What You Want Wants You. Mm-hmm. And I first learned about it in my coaching courses because we were having a lot of conversations about, you know, when you become a coach, marketing yourself towards, you know, a, a niche or a group of people and not trying to be every coach to every person, Mm -hmm. not just because it's smart business-wise, but because you have a unique set of experiences and gifts that you bring to the world. And the idea that what you have to offer, there are people looking for that specific cocktail of everything that you have in place. And I've just started the book. At the beginning, she really talks more about the theory that, that you just talked about, the idea that we're all like an individual, she says, an individual expression of one source that we all have these qualities and skills that we bring forward that 
in it, she talks about what she calls the generosity of selfishness, that when you follow your desires, you are really serving the whole. And I used to hear it put like, if you save yourself, you're really saving the whole world. Because when we bring forth our unique desires, um, we can help a lot of people. Yes. Yeah. Plus we're going through life as happier people, (laughs) you know? And um, that definitely affects everyone around us as well. Yeah, I used to think that you sort of have one purpose and that you have to, you better hurry up and find it, find your passion or your purpose. And I remember in college, there was this one guy we hung out with. He said, since he was a child, he knew he loved planes. He wanted to be a pilot, never wavered all through college, studied, loved planes, wanted to be a pilot. Guess what? He became a pilot. Still now, he is a pilot. He will retire as a pilot. And I was so jealous of him. Like, how did you figure that out? Like, you're so lucky. And you meet people like that. They just sort of know at an early age. Yeah. Um, But I was really jealous. And then I heard um, Elizabeth Gilbert again, where she talks about the idea that there's jackhammers and hummingbirds, and that some people in this lifetime, they are like her. She's a writer. She's always writing. She's just jackhammering away at that sort of singular goal. And that some of us are more like hummingbirds, kind of flitting from one thing to the next, maybe maybe in the garden of similar things, but that we're moving from one thing to the next. And not only are we getting new information at each little flower, but we're also cross-pollinating all the flowers. And that it's totally okay not to have one singular purpose or one passion. And I really wish that I had been taught that growing up. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and I do think that's a newer thing, a newer message, like during our, I'd say our generation and later, I was never under the belief that a company would take care of me for the rest of my life. Previous generations. I know in Japan, that was still like that. Um, in corporations that you're, you you graduate from college or whatever, you start with a company and then you stay with them and you retire and you get a gold watch or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there, there was never any loyalty that I saw on the part of companies to individuals. So that was, a, to me, that was a very silly thing for people to pledge themselves or devote their mm-hmm. lives to a company that just could like downsize them at any minute. So that's, I think that was one aspect that changed in recent generations. Um, And also, like you said, too, that message that you can do whatever you want, you can be whatever you want to be, you know, um, the world is your oyster, which on the one hand is really freeing, but it also (laughs) opens up a really wide field that can be um, daunting. So um, a big part of narrowing down that field is this, um, this idea that coaching is one way to get at it, um, narrowing it down to, well, what, what do you really love doing? What would you hate to do? Like what, what would just make your life miserable? Let's eliminate that right off the bat. (laughs) And, um, and what kind of work matches up with who you really are? Because when there's a mismatch that can be, um, even if it's like a good fit for your skills, if, the environment's not a good match with your core values. It can be painful. Um, I've been listening yeah. to Amy Poehler's audiobook. Yes, yes, please. 
And yeah, she talks a little bit about that, how she felt really lucky that her parents didn't like try to put put her into a box. They just kind of let her go do her thing and explore whatever she wanted, even though it was improv comedy, like right out of college. And she had started in college and uh, moved to Chicago to pursue it. And she said if she had one bit of advice for people coming out of or graduating from school and trying to figure out what's next, rather than that broad question, what do you want to do? Um, How about what would you absolutely not want to do? Mm. And I thought that is really good to start by eliminating the things that would make you miserable for whatever reason. Yeah, we, we opened up this field of possibility for people, but how do we educate people on how to make those choices? And yes, it's great that you have so many possibilities, but could it be over? It could be overwhelming. And, you know, I think when you feel like I don't know what I'm supposed to do, I can't find my purpose. Everyone else is finding their purpose or you're in a career that's not really your calling and you're putting all this time and effort into it. And it can cause a lot of anxiety. It can cause a lot of self-doubt. Um, I used to see this with the students I worked with in the talented and gifted program where they had a lot of potential in a lot of areas but I used to hear that refrain from a lot of my students, just because I'm good at something, do I have to do it? And no, you don't have to do something just because you're good at it. If you don't enjoy it. Wow. What a revelation for those kids, huh? Once they are given permission to do what they enjoy. I mean, you probably have moments from when you were a kid where you, you, you saw something and you just, you just knew, like, I'm so interested in that. Mm-hmm. I think. I heard someone say once that people have a really strong sense of who they are around age 10, eight Mm -hmm. to 10. And I think even in coaching, if you ask people to think back to that age and what they would really be interested in doing, if money was no object, you get some answers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That was how I got to that idea of dance with that one coaching client. Uh, I would always ask people, you know, think back to when you were a kid, what what could you do for hours and never get tired of it and always look forward to it? Um, you know, what just brought you pure joy, whatever it was. And it is really interesting to hear um, the things that, and people can easily go back to that moment too. It's such a an emotional, visceral kind of memory that um, we all have that answer. My friend's daughter is looking at colleges this year and at one of the schools, they had the prospective students meet with the the college counselors. And those are the type of questions that they were being asked. So my friend's daughter was asked, tell us about a time when, when you were younger that you just got lost in what you were doing and you loved it so much and you could do it all day. I never got asked those questions in college. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. love for integrating that into the process. Yeah. Did you have a sense of what you wanted to do when you were younger? What were your thoughts as you were growing up? Yeah, I always wanted to be an artist when I was five. Um, artist and mathematician, I think. Um, <laughs> when I was around five, I remember watching a show on PBS with my mom about Leonardo da Vinci. 
And they showed him as a five-year-old, as a kid, just uh, kind of inventing things in his head and putting things down on paper. And I loved that he was um, an artist. uh, He was creative, wonderful at drawing and painting, but he also had this really mechanical mind and invented things. And so I I remember being thrilled by that, um, that idea that you could be an artist in a way that had these really practical implications, but also, also as well, he also made things just that were purely aesthetically pleasing. I guess growing up, I always thought, well, I want to be an artist, but I want to do something practical with it as well. And so I, I was a graphic design. That's what I pursued in college was fine art slash communication. So I could learn fine arts, but also ways to apply it, like graphic design. Um, yeah, so I, I, I kind of always knew and I pursued that. But then when I actually did it, I realized that I didn't love doing artwork for other people. Like, because as a graphic designer, you come up with an idea and then clients often have their own ideas. And I felt like then it wasn't mine anymore. And I was just kind of like a, a drawing monkey. So mm. <laughs> So that's when I decided to think more about what I might like. And I actually did read What Color Is Your Parachute. Um, I took some other um, avocation or vacation kinds of tests, quizzes, and they all kept coming back to either artist or psychologist. And I was like, well, I know the artist thing is a passion and a vocation, but um, for a career, what would I, what would I like to do? And I really, really, really assisted the idea of psychologist because I thought that meant therapist and I really didn't want to be a therapist. As I delved into it, I realized you could be a psychologist in so many different ways. And that, uh, and I discovered this idea of applied psychology where you take research or create research, then actually immediately apply it to help lots of different people in their lives. Um, I wondered about the connection with Gen Z and the idea of watching adults go through the recession in the aughts and how money was such an issue. Did that generation grow up with a different idea of, I have to be practical? So I had heard recently that one of the most frequently cited career paths they're hearing from high schoolers these days is YouTube star or YouTube influencer. Really? Yeah. And because there are, I mean, it's not like everyone, but there are a lot of opportunities that, um, that weren't available like even 10 years ago. But again, with, with the connectivity now, there are just all these new opportunities. And I think a lot more kids are seeing that they don't have to follow up expectations um for a classic career that they can forge their own way so yeah so I've been hearing a lot of different things but that was something that I heard from someone who had been um like following or following the patterns nationwide and maybe it comes back to this idea of jackhammers versus hummingbirds you know there's still going to be our regardless of your generation the people who fit into the, like my friend, John, like I love planes, I'm going to be a pilot. And then we have the hummingbirds where couldn't do that if they wanted to, and probably are trying to, how can they still enter the system, the college system 
and thrive knowing that they might be flitting from one thing to the next. Mm-hmm. Right. Or maybe the college system is not for them. Yeah. Even I though, think, yeah. I think there can be a lot of shame behind not having your purpose or your one thing. And I think sometimes people can feel bad about the fact that they're not sticking with one thing and moving from one thing into the next when really that's going to be what they do for the rest of their life, going to be a wanderer. And that's okay. Thanks for listening to Two Harmless Randos. Check out our show notes for more information about the topics we discussed today. And if you like the show, consider giving us a rating or a review.